liberty lockdown please scan your barcode your liberty ain't gone but yeah it's on hold where did it come from and where did it go it requires a fight not tweeting from your phone don't need a king get him off the fucking throne if you're riding with the thought you've always got a home the virus is scared of will come and it'll go the government knows this don't get treated like a hoe Happy anniversary, you fucking lunatics. This is Clint Russell, your host of Liberty Lockdown, and today we're going to do a deep dive on the mm, questionable history behind a day that we will never forget. In fact, I will never forget it. I was about 18 years old when it happened, and it was uh, pretty fucked up, not going to lie. And the, the following 20 years after haven't been much better, unfortunately, because... We were lied to about that day, and then we went out and killed a bunch of innocent people. Pretty pretty messed up, not going to lie. Uh, before we bring in our guest today, I want to thank our sponsor, which is Sideshaper.com. If you want to get shredded so that you can run away from the New World Order, go to Sideshaper.com. If you want to lose those COVID pounds, go to Sideshaper.com. Use the code LIBERTY, get 50 bucks off. It is a swiveling ab machine. There's a video on the website, Think Kicks Ass. It'll help you uh, lose some of those COVID LBs and hopefully find yourself a wife, you freaking incels. What are you doing with your lives? Sideshaper.com, promo code LIBERTY, 50 bucks off. Without further ado, the host of Out for Smokes podcast, Mr. Sean McCarthy. Welcome in, sir. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm going to use Sideshaper. I'm going to finally have more than a sixth grader's body weight. (laughs) Good for you, dude. Good for you. Uh, so th- thanks for joining me, man. I- I've always, uh, I- I've been following you for about, I don't know, six months or a year now. And, and you seem to be what I would classify as a based lefty. And, uh, and I, I really have enjoyed some of your threads on nine 11 or just some of your tweets in general. And I-, I reached out cause I was like, I like to hear different opinions because it seems like everybody that questions the narrative of, of that day has their own, you know, it's like, uh, a different vintage of wine. <laughs> like sure. everyone, everyone's got their own vineyard here. Uh, so we can start wherever you want, man. I, I'm, I'm open. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, you're right that there's a bunch of different theories of what happened, but kind of the reality is we don't, we don't know. We can say some things that didn't happen, like the 2004 official nine 11 commission report, uh, right. And that's like, you know, the, the basis of my understanding of, of 9-11 truth, which has become a loaded word, but I don't understand what's wrong with wanting the truth about an event. That's uh, it's a universal good. It's um, a deep, deeply Orwellian newspeak that truth yes. is now, uh, you know. Right. They, they call people 9-11. Yeah. 9-11 truthers is an insult. And it's like, well, yeah, OK, I, I, I better uh, maintain the status quo by lying about 9-11. I wouldn't want to be one of those truther freaks. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, the basis of what I understand is 9 of the basis of what I understand to be 9-11 truth is the fact that the official report, this is what everybody holds up as the official story. This is the 2004 9-11 commission. And there are fatal flaws in it that are now acknowledged in any mainstream uh, news outlet you want to pick up. But just to kind of run through a couple, like, again, this is the official 2004 9-11 Commission report. Uh, Twenty More than 25% of all the citations in that thing come from torture interviews. So this is not going to work in any court of law. 
Uh, you know, they talk about like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed has waterboarded like 83 times and all that. This is how they put the story together is they just tortured these guys. And then they said, tell us what happened on 9-11. And you can kind of see the problem there for a variety of reasons. But my personal cynical view is that there was a different story of 9-11. And then they got these Al-Qaeda deta- uh, detainees and they tortured them. And they said, hey, the torture is not going to stop until you tell us what we want to hear for the story because this is the way it worked was the 9-11 commission when they uh, investigated this they wanted access to the detainees personally they wanted to be able to you know interview them face to face and stuff all these al-qaeda detainees and the cia said no the cia said you can ask us written questions and we will give them the written questions and then you got to trust us in between so we don't know if the questions were conveyed accurately we don't know if um the answers were returned accurately but we do know that these people uh, at least 25 percent of the citations that they rely on came from torture so it, it does seem like obviously that alone in a court of law would have it thrown out but then you have all this other stuff with saudi arabia uh also a bit with the Pakistan's ISI, a couple of shady things with Israel's Mossad, and, you know, the actions of the CIA, particularly the Alex station, the um, the bin Laden station they had, where they, uh, I mean, they literally let some of the alleged hijackers into the country. So th- there's just like, I could go on and also about the insider trading, you know, th- there's so many angles that you can attack the 9-11 commission report from, but that's sort of, sort of my fundamental starting point is like, it's the worst terrorist attack in American history. The official report is bullshit. Anybody who looks at it knows that we, we all acknowledge that. So why isn't there a demand for another investigation? You know, it's not like the Kennedy assassination, Dick Cheney's still alive. We could still interview the guy. There's, you know, CIA people like George Tennant or uh, uh, Tom Wilshire and Richard Blee were the heads of the Alex station, the bin Laden CIA station. They're still alive. We can still interview these people. So my, my, my main view with 9-11 is I have my little pet theories as to what happened, but my main view is like the truth is important. Let's do another investigation while the people are still here uh, and let's get some, some closure and some real answers. Well, I think I think you answered your own question as to why there were, will not be another investigation <laughs> because the people are still alive that were yeah. behind it, um, and and I think that there are many people that that ultimately hold some level of of blame or culpability, and uh, and I think many of them are in our government and they do not want to be uh, discovered or you know prosecuted. It would it would shine a light on the war crimes that we committed in their name too. So I I think that. There, there's almost no chance of that happening. Uh, if you've if you've followed at all, you know the the COVID origin story and and how that's been covered up. Uh, I think that we're dealing with kind of a round two of a 9/11 style investigation where you had Peter Daszak who was put in charge of fucking investigating the lab from which it it likely uh, arose, uh, and and he was the one that was <laughs> doing the funding for the research in in the lab. I mean, it's just. It's just incredible. Uh, is there is there any aspect of the 9-11 story that that we've been told that is accurate? I mean, uh, let's let's start with that, because it seems as if that may be easier. Well, what of the story is true, do you think? 
Well, um, and again, even in the tr uh, the truth community, there's debates on this. I do think there is or there was such a thing as Al-Qaeda, but then it gets kind of into, we don't actually know when or even if the CIA disentangled itself from Al-Qaeda because everybody or most everybody knows the story about the, the CIA backing the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, which of course right. eventually would become Al-Qaeda. Al but these uh, these Al Qaeda plots in like the 90s, like the 1998 embassy bombing, uh, embassy bombings in Africa. There were multiple. Um, these and the USS Cole as another example. These are terrorist incidents that seem to have uh, CIA fingerprints directly on them. You know, Peter Dale Scott is my uh, is an actual intellectual. I just kind of play act one on podcasts, but uh, he's he's really my favorite researcher on. Uh, deep politics or parapolitics in the United States. And, you know, he's written many great books. One of them, The Road to 9-11, I recommend a lot. But Peter Dale Scott is a, a guy who told me about this, this man named Ali Muhammad. And you never hear about him in the U.S. media, but it's actually quite incredible. He's in federal custody, and he's just never been sentenced. And part of the reason for that is he was clearly uh, working for CIA or some agency of the U.S. government at some point. But basically, he trained uh, al-Qaeda, bin Laden, and some of uh, those uh, terrorists. He trained them in hijacking. He trained them in terrorist techniques because there was this period um, where they were actually, during the, the Soviet war in Afghanistan, but also just after, there was an interest within like some sectors of the U.S. government of carrying out terrorist attacks within the Soviet Union while it was still existing. So they kind of actually wanted to train terrorists in you know, Pakistan or Afghanistan and actually send them into the, the Soviet Union to, to wreak havoc. So Ali Muhammad was this guy who he did train bin Laden and al-Qaeda members in terrorist hijacking and other techniques, but he also helped them scope out uh, the embassy. Uh, in hmm. one of the 1998 uh, bombings in Africa. And he was involved in the, um, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And it, it's one of those weird things where this guy is like so clearly a double agent, but you never hear about him. And then basically they just kind of picked him up and he disappeared into federal purgatory where he's never been sentenced and he still remains. And um, is, he, is he in Gitmo? No, I don't think he's in Gitmo. I think he's just in some federal like cell. But for what you know, they won't sentence him is the thing because he was very clearly a double agent. So we, we don't even really know what's going on with him right now. He's just kind of in federal purgatory. Interesting. Um, so did he did he train them all throughout the 90s or was it just a brief window? Do you know? It went up at least past the embassy bombings. I believe after the 98 embassy bombing, uh, he stopped. Uh, I, I should double check when he was actually picked up. I think it was just before 9-11. But basically, like, the debate is, because nobody, well, let's say, you know, uh, a lot of mainstream Republican and Democrat voters will deny, but most normal people won't deny that the CIA trained al-Qaeda at some point. But then you get into these arguments of when did it actually stop? And mm -hmm. I think it went up like literally to the day of 9-11. And then 
maybe after that they picked up different <laughs> splinter groups. But it's well, like I mean, we've been we've been basically backing Al Qaeda in in Syria and other other nations that have been kind of are they're up against ISIS. So now they're they're the good guys once again, just like they were when they were up against uh you know the USSR in the eighties. Um, so I, I'm not sure that it's ever stopped. It it seems as if we both create these terrorist terrorist organizations and then we just utilize them whenever they serve our purpose is, is kind of how I view our Middle East Middle Eastern policy. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Is that unfair? No, I think that's very accurate. And it's like, um, yeah, in terms of like what's true with the real narrative, like, yes, I believe planes hit the buildings. Um, and then I'm like, I'm agnostic on the kind of controlled demolition stuff. Like, I don't think it's impossible, but I'm also sure. not a mechanical engineer. So it doesn't, I don't have to believe one way or the other. What ultimately convinced me was these intelligence agency connections, you know, particularly the CIA, particularly Saudi intelligence, um, the, these connections to the hijackers and all the kind of cover up and also, you know, the insider trading that, uh, if, if you look at markets at all, it's so obvious what happened before 9-11 is that a whole bunch of people in July and August 2001, you know, suddenly got extremely lucky and they just knew something really bad was about to happen and they didn't have any inside information at all. And it's just so absurd that you can have, um, in the case of uh, United Airlines, it was one of the planes, uh, one of the airlines that was hijacked. And one um, the market ex- in one market exchange in California, they were trading the shorts, the bets that the United stock would go down. They were like 25 times the typical average um, in just uh, the week before. And you actually see this with so many different securities. Like it, I have a bit of an interest in, in financial markets, but it is fascinating to me where it's like, yeah, the, um, the S&P 500, the uh, general market, Shorts in the S&P 500 go crazy in August 2001. And this is what we use for evidence of informed insider trading elsewhere. It's just like, let's look at a market over a seven-day period. Let's look at an exchange and let's say, what is the average amount of you know calls and shorts on this uh, particular security? And what you see in, in the lead up to 9-11, particularly the month before, is that uh shorts on most everything go crazy but also buys on like defense companies like this company mm. stratsec you know that would do a lot of security uh install a lot of metal detectors and shit you know raytheon that people are buying exactly what you would buy and selling exactly what you would sell if you knew 911 was coming and and it's just so it's absurd because all this financial traffic is there and nobody, not even the 9-11 commission will say, yeah, the, the 19 hijackers in Al Qaeda, they did these financial transactions. No, they don't say that. So then the next question is, okay, yeah, who did and how did they know and what did they know and when did they know it? And all these things that you're, you know, if, if we lived in, in, in a democracy with rule of law, you would expect, uh, an investigation to get to the bottom of and establish the truth of and met out justice. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have a, a bureaucracy that its entire job is to identify anomalous trading patterns and then to go fucking investigate. It's called the SEC yep. Securities yep. and Exchange Commission. And 
And if they haven't done it, I mean, all of these trades have names to them. Like it's a yes. very, it's a very easy process to go. All right, these guys were trading massive amounts of United Airlines short in the week leading up to you know the most catastrophic event to ever hit you know the airline industry. Uh, let's go ask them where they got this this inkling that this was a, a good play. I mean, it's such a such an easy question to ask, and if it hasn't been asked, which I assume it hasn't, then you have to ask, okay, now why? Why hasn't that question been asked? Um, so let's start there. Ha- have has the SEC has the 911 Commission investigated those trading patterns at all, as far, to your knowledge? Yeah, and this is a, a very interesting story because it blows people's minds and blew my mind when I learned about it. But basically. Uh, again, the 2004 official 9-11 Commission report, they do very briefly address some, but not all, of um, these suspicious trades. They do address some of them. And they talk about the suspicious shorts on United and American Airlines. And again, there are other trades besides those, but th- those did happen. Um, and they, they do a very cute kind of lawyerly thing where they said, though the trades... Uh, and I'm, of course, paraphrasing, but people can look up the exact quote. I think I'll get it mostly right. Uh, Though the trades do appear suspicious at first, they were made by an institutional investor with no known links to Al-Qaeda. And they're kind of begging (laughs) the questions there because what they're saying is Al-Qaeda did 9-11. These people doing the financial stuff, they were not doing 9-11. So hence, they could not have had knowledge of 9-11. Incredible, and even even more horrifying is they uh, the SEC did investigate, and you know very clearly this was politically shut down because what the nine eleven commission report then does is they cite the SEC uh, findings of the their investigation into insider trading, which it was ultimately they said, hey, no insider trading here. So the nine eleven commission report uh, cites that and says no insider trading. And then uh, a researcher uh, FOIAed them, you know, Freedom of Information Act request, and they just sent to the SEC, hey, um, could I have uh, all relevant information in terms of modeling or just how you determined that there was no insider trading here? Because there have been, since the 9-11 Commission report, at least three econometric papers and peer-reviewed journals where uh, people put together these trades that I've been talking about, and they all of all three of them conclude there's a near certain probability of of insider trading. And if people are interested in looking at that, the, I wrote an article on my Substack. It's linked there. But basically, the, this guy FOIA'd the SEC, and he said, "Hey, could I see how you arrived at this determination that there was no insider trading?" And the SEC wrote back, uh, "The relevant documents have been destroyed." And so that's wow. it. The entire basis of the sec like if they have some model or or something that shows there were you know other explanations besides insider trading for what was going on in the markets like please share it with us but no it's it's literally this is again the official government investigation of 9-11 that everybody tells you you're a fucking lunatic if you don't believe this is there's a footnote in it and the footnote links to documents that have been destroyed and nobody can ever see And that's the entire evidence. That is the entire evidentiary basis against there being insider trading. That's astonishing. Yeah. Um, So has anybody discovered who that institutional investor was that they 
said, well, they're not Al-Qaeda, so it's okay. Do we know who that was? Yeah, and so we don't know all of them, but um, one of the ones that, that really uh, jumps out at people is uh, this bank called Alex Brown. I think it's been like folded into Deutsche Bank now, but it's relevant because of this guy named Buzzy Krongard. Buzzy Krongard became number three at the CIA like right before 9-11, and he just so... <laughs> He just so happened to have been CEO of Alex Brown right until he left for his CIA job. So it is pretty weird that Alex Brown with the, you know, number three CIA guy used to be their CEO and they're running some of these very suspicious shorts right before 9-11. My God, man, that is so dark. Uh, is there is there any truth to the story that because uh, obviously, you know, the Twin Towers had thousands of finance industry people inside them is it true that there was more like calling sick outs the day of because I've, I've read that elsewhere but i have no idea if it's true do you know um i mean i know there are like obviously certain particular instances like the very famously the owner larry silverstein lucky larry uh, had a dental appointment or something, mm. and he just happened to call his daughter and tell her as well not to come to work. And you know, uh, and there are like particular, um, I don't, uh, I don't want to misremember, so I don't want to missay, but there are like uh, bankers and, and some other higher level people, uh, were, were not seen at I think Solomon Brothers. Yeah, that's uh, some the one of, that I've read about. Yeah, yeah. Some of the some of the upper management was not there, but it's like, uh, so like I can't say like percentages of like callouts and and sure, stuff like sure. that, but I can point to like a bunch of various instances of people who seem to have heads up. Like, uh, there's a salon article I linked to on um, on my Substack, which talks about uh, two senior Pentagon officials were planning to fly on 9/11 and got a security call warning them not to willie brown is a former mayor of san francisco you, you know he used to bang kamala harris right. but he uh uh he got or like right after 9 11 he just told a local san francisco journalist yeah i had a flight scheduled into new york on 9 11 and my security people at the airport called me and said no you can't go and then he wouldn't elaborate on who his security people were and he uh, has never been questioned about this. And and then again, like uh, George W. Bush's Attorney General John Ashcroft, he stopped flying commercial airlines entirely in July 2001. He only flew private jets uh, because of a specific threat against commercial airlines. And then he even told his acting FBI chief uh, not to brief him about al-Qaeda in two right. July 2001 he said uh, stop telling me stop giving me these al-Qaeda briefings quote there's nothing i can do about that what the fuck does that mean and and so it's just like if you look at the US government and just kind of everything that's going on in July and August 2001 it just becomes very obvious that there's something in the air and a lot of people are being told maybe they're not being told everything but they're being told enough Guys like John Ashcroft are being told, hey, something's coming, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. But it, it does kind of create this, this interesting thing where you see various bureaucracies kind of try to, let's say, cover their tracks or at least cover their ass. You know, like that's what the, 
infamously the um, bin Laden determined to uh, strike inside the U.S. briefing that George W. Bush uh, got, uh, he told the CIA briefer, okay, now you've covered your ass. And that's what it was, was it was like in July and August, you know, this thing was a go. So every little institution was just trying to, let's say, put their head in the ground and not and, and make it so that they wouldn't take the blame. But also, you know, nobody was actually trying to stop it because this was in the government uh, by military contractor interest. Right. Well, and I mean, if you look at the military uh, contractor interests that were fulfilled because of that day, it, it really adds to the case. I mean, at least like if you go just purely qui bono, like who benefited from from this event, uh, it's hard to argue that anyone benefited more than the military industrial complex. I and mean, we've we've now spent trillions of dollars in these what I what I view to be completely illegal and unconstitutional wars uh, all over the place, and and they've you know reaped a huge percentage of those benefits. Um, do you think it's that dark? Do you think that this is uh, like I, I always try and uh, assess this based off of like it, there's obviously lots of different interests within the government that benefit as well as uh, private industry that benefited from from this event. Um, do you have any inkling as to like who? Do you think that the military industrial complex is actually in bed with the government deep enough that they are, they could actually have some culpability in that day itself? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's like, I think the revolving door has gotten to the point where the federal government is just really an arm of these sort of monopoly multinationals at this point. Like it's, it's almost a oh, distinction without a, it's, it's like yeah. a distinction without a difference to go like, uh, major multinational corporation government. It's it's like they they go from one to the other, and they kind of or you know these bureaucrats they they revolving door from one to the other, and they're ultimately serving the same purpose. Where it's like you know in the case of Google or Twitter, the, the U.S. government can't censor you, but they can just ask their corporate buddies to censor you, and then oh, they're going to be in that job in two months anyways, and then vice right. versa. Like Google and Facebook can't arrest you, but if you fuck with Google or Facebook, like you better believe, like <laughs> they have friends in the Justice Department, they will make your life hell. Um, so they they all have they have their little designated spheres, and they they cut it out. But but uh, and yeah, and just to go back to the who benefits thing, it's like. It's so very, people get so, they can't understand the motivation, and it's so obvious. Like, there was a, a study from Brown University, which is a, a very, like, conservative estimate, is that the U.S. has spent $8 trillion in the 20-year war on terror. I've seen, you know, estimates that are even higher, you know, double-digit trillions, you know, whatever, like, figure. It's obviously, it's difficult to calculate, but it's, it's a, a staggering amount of money. Right. And it's like, you know, you, you, you look inside your soul. I'm sure you're a good person and you, you would never harm another. But uh, you know enough people and you know enough, like, you know that if, let's say, 100 million was on the line, you would at least think about killing somebody. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like when 8 trillion's on the line and uh, these people, I don't think they've really done anything to demonstrate that they're good or have any particular moral code. So it does not really 
give me any pause to think that they would be capable of killing 3,000 people in lower Manhattan for $8 trillion. It's sure. a staggering amount of money. And, and, you know, and just like the last thing on this is like these debunkers, they always talk about um, uh, Occam's razor, you know, the simplest possible explanation. Well, the thing is, the simplest possible explanation it would be that they either made to happen or allowed to happen this thing that vastly benefited them because the alternative would be just by pure accident and incompetence, this thing that they'd been praying for out loud for 20 years, when you read Project for a New American Century and they talk about the need for a new Pearl Harbor, and, you know, all these, like, freakouts that you can read in the press in the 90s when the Cold War ended and the military-industrial complex, they didn't know when the next paycheck was coming. This is like a real crisis moment for them in the <laughs> 90s. Um, There's not so, going to be war. This is a crisis. I know, yeah. right? Yeah, and it's like, okay, so they solved all of their problems at once and got basically everything they ever wanted and I'm supposed to believe they did that because they fucked up. That doesn't sound like much of a fuck up. <laughs> was it was it Wolfowitz that was the project for a New American Century, or who was that? Do you remember? Yeah, Wolfowitz, but also Cheney and Rumsfeld. Like yeah. basically everybody who'd come into the George W. Bush White House was on uh, PNAC. <laughs> Just coincidentally, too, all the yeah. guys from the project for New American Century they they're ushered into the White House in 2000, and uh, and then. Bob's your uncle. A year later, we have the war that we need to justify their entire existence and that's and, right. and paper their bottom line. I mean, that that's it's just so dark, man. I think that's that's what prevents a lot of people from questioning this stuff. Is like the I, I describe them as blue pilled, but it's really not fair. It's just the average person, the the person who believes that their government education was not rife with deceit and uh, mm -hmm. and ultimately. You know, when they vote, their vote matters, and the people that rule over them are uh, looking out for their benefit. It's like that's a much more comforting way to live. Uh, it's also completely detached from reality, in my estimation. But I understand why people are hesitant to look at some of these anomalies and, uh, and, and, you know, not want to conclude that perhaps your government is, uh, is in fact your enemy. Is that, is that a fair assessment as to why you think this story is, uh, the vast majority of people are just unwilling to look at it. I think that's fair. Yeah. And you know, I'm, uh, yeah, I've been thinking about that these last couple of weeks because yeah, once you kind of look into the abyss and you accept that, like, regardless of what actually happened, I don't think there's any doubt that the U S government lied to the American people very severely about nine 11 and they've been doing it for now 21 years. So once you kind of like look into the abyss of that, it's, um, rather difficult at least for for a little bit you have a bit of a transition period you know if you if you didn't think your government was capable of just murdering 3,000 innocent people in downtown manhattan and you know you've heard the the 911 calls of the people in the towers and you've seen the jumpers and all that it's a horrific evil like there is real evil in this world and, and to to know that you know, your government is capable of either allowing such a thing to happen and certainly of covering it up, if not actually making it happen. I mean, you know, how do you go to the grocery store? How do you just hang out with your friends? How do you see your wife and 
you know, just kind of do the day-to-day stuff that you have to, to do. It's, it's much more comforting to kind of, ignore. let's say, <laughs> yeah, ignore it. Yeah. And, and like, honestly, a lot of like liberals and, and, and other people you'll meet, they have this kind of this weird blinder where it's like they accept, yeah, we got lied into a war in Iraq. Like, that was all bullshit. We all know that's bullshit. They killed half a million, a million, however many people, um, based on, on lies. And it was criminal, and those people, they should be in prison, but Obama let them all go. And, and you know, so they, they can accept that government will lie, and they'll murder way more than 3,000 innocent people, but they'll do it over there. Right. They won't they would do, never it do it here. never do us. <laughs> right. And it's because it's like you can get this kind of twisted logic where you say, like, oh, those, you know, bureaucrats and the um, the generals and the, all these people at the Pentagon, they they have maybe a backwards logic. Maybe they don't even know what they're doing, but in their heart of hearts, they want to protect us. They're doing their best, you know, even though the Iraq thing was bullshit, they really did believe and they thought they were protecting us. And it's like, once you accept the truth of 9-11, that's gone forever. Mm. You understand that you are at best incidental to the purposes of this system. And that can be hard to, uh, hard to swallow for certain, you know, liberals raised on the musical Hamilton. Um, but, (laughs) but like at the same time, you know, I don't, I don't begrudge people for like, walking or hiding from this essentially because you know i was i was i i understood this stuff like you know i watched some of the the truth documentaries like zeitgeist and loose change and stuff when i was younger and i immediately got it even though there are there are are incorrect things in there but there's a lot of truth things uh i immediately got it but then later i went to college and i was you know read some books by eminent New York Times journalists and such. And I, you know, re-educated myself. And I was like, no, I was so stupid then. I didn't know. It, it's not like that. And it's just kind of the, the process of, of humanity. It is, it is much easier and nicer to live with the, that other version. Yeah, um, of course it is. Well, and, and I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how the people that, that ultimately you know, cheerled the wars in, in the response to it, uh, created the, you know, the apparatus that are now being turned inward against the MAGA Republicans and, and get your take on that. Cause I know you're obviously not a MAGA Republican. Um, yeah. so I think it'll, it'll be curious to hear what your opinion is on that. But before I do that, I want to thank our other sponsor and that is expat money summit. They're an upcoming online summit by my friend, Mikkel Thorpe, who has been on the show. He is the man, the myth, the legend behind expatmoney.com with over 30 experts who are focused on moving your life, business, and wealth offshore. It's free to attend. If you are now questioning the entire existence of your government, want to get the fuck out of the country, I totally do not blame you. Go to expatmoneysummit.com. Reclaim your freedom from chaos and uncertainty. Topics will include how to secure your own plan B safe haven, how to use foreign currencies, offshore banking, and decentralized finance to safeguard your money, how to legally reduce your tax burden, where the best countries are in the world to find freedom for yourself and your family, how you can get a second passport to travel the globe without restrictions and get in and out of different countries' borders, where you can talk to the CIA about how they got some second passports. Uh, uh, You will also learn about a libertarian island haven, private cities, communities on the ocean, and food and energy independent towns in Latin America. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com. Just added to the lineup, the great 
Ron Paul. Do not miss it. Again, register for free over at expatmoneysummit.com. And we are back with Sean McCarthy, uh, the great, great grandson of uh, Senator McCarthy. I can't That's believe right. that. I'm just so, so proud honored of to have you. <laughs> yeah. Can I, um, uh, can I get the, uh, the jet fuel proof passports? Do they sell those? Yes, the kinds exactly. that just flutter down to ground zero and are <laughs> completely intact. <laughs> Is that a true story? Because it's hard to believe. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, one of the hijackers, I, I want to say it's Muhammad Atta. But yeah, one of them was just they discovered his passport in grounds just in Manhattan. And apparently the this is the official story. It's like the plane hit and it just ejected from the plane and then flew down to the ground. And, so, you know, uh, of course, they can't recover the black box. But the, the passport, that's, you know, those are made of indestructible fireproof <laughs> materials. The black box designed to survive a plane crash does not survive passport made of paper 100% okay. You know, why don't they just why don't they just make the whole plane out of the passport? <laughs> That's what I say. Uh, it would have would have probably just bounced right off the building. Um all right, so <laughs> let's let's go into it, man. I, I I think that it's from my vantage point, you can tell me if you disagree. Uh it's quite evident to me that they are turning the war on terror inward. Um mm-hmm. and and it seems as if both, you know, the anti-war left which is being targeted uh, it has been forever, uh, but also the anti-war right, which is kind of how I view the the MAGA Republicans to a large extent. They're they're not at least as pro-war as they once were. Uh, obviously, when it comes to China, that's a totally different issue, and there's lots of hawks that still persist, unfortunately. Um, but it seems, especially, uh, I, well, let's start there. What did you think of Biden's speech? I know, I know, you're you're no friend of MAGA, so did you did you like it? Um, I mean, I didn't particularly care for it, but it, it's uh, it's also like um, I think some of the the wailing from the other side I, I think uh, was a little disproportionate in the sense that we're already at this point in, in U.S. politics where large parts of the country, quite rightly, think the politicians are pedophiles, <laughs> and I think it's. Um, I think it's it's a little naive to believe that there's just the pedophiles in the one party and not the other. I think that's of kind course. of childish. Yeah. Um, but it's like okay, at the same time, you know, uh, if 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 you think Biden is like a child eating pedophile and you say that all the time, you right. shouldn't be that shocked if he's going to come out and say you are a danger. We are coming after you. I mean, like you know. This kind of like heated rhetoric, which I um, obviously I I don't endorse because I think I think the domestic war on terror that you were talking about I think that's very real and I think it's extremely dangerous uh, and I think that's the next goal is to essentially criminalize dissent, which right. is what they've been trying to do. Like um, you know, for the a... FBI has been lobbying for this domestic terrorism bill that all sorts of Democrats up and down the line have endorsed. And it's absolutely insane because like that's the entire problem with fucking with the term terrorist. Like this is what liberals used to talk about during the George W. Bush administration. The term right. terrorist has no fucking meaning at all. It's not a legal term. It's just person we don't like. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what domestic terrorism law would be used for. We don't like you. We're going to put you in prison, and that's all there is to it. It's about criminalizing dissent. Um, I, I agree. I, I think that's exactly what it is. So, 
I mean, it, it, for for those that aren't familiar with you, give, give us kind of your your political backdrop. I, I'm sure some people are curious. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say I'm like a left to center guy, but you know, I'm about to turn 34. Like when you're in your 20s, you're a utopian. You think we're going to change the world and we're going to do everything I want to do and it's all going to work out exactly. And and then you kind of get older and you're like, well, there's like a small limited number of goals. And if I could see even like one or two of those in my lifetime, I'd be pretty happy. So it's like, <laughs> like my general view and because, yeah, like I would uh, if you had to put me, I would end up on the left as opposed to the right. But I have serious problems with the left in America. And I think in particular since the Kennedy assassination, though 9-11's only made it worse. But kind of what you've seen is like the left, um, partly because of guys like Noam Chomsky, Howard Zinn, Alexander Coburn would be three good examples. A very prominent leftists who are like some of the big ones that you would read and, and study all really pushed the movement away from quote unquote conspiracy. And, um, and I think they were to an extent, I'm not calling them ops or anything, but I think kind of the way the media is set up is that if you want a career, if you want to get on TV or be published by the nation or, you know, be in democracy now, uh, <laughs> the media is kind of set up to incur, uh, to filter, to make sure that people with uh, particularly problematic viewpoints uh, do not end up in these public spaces. So, yeah. So basically, like the left since the Kennedy assassination, and again since nine eleven, has made this kind of <clears throat> compromise with itself, where either they'll say, you know, all that conspiracy stuff is bullshit, and give only the most uh, specious um, investigation of it. Uh, they'll say it's all bullshit or they'll say, you know, it doesn't matter or or they'll say like, oh, we have to look reasonable. We don't want to look crazy. And all that's done since the Kennedy assassination has just been defeat after defeat after defeat. And you look at really the remnants of democracy in this country, like so much was shredded with 9-11. And, and, and so I guess my point is like look, pretending that pretending the Kennedy assassination wasn't the CIA, pretending 9-11 didn't have inside job fingerprints. That's been the strategy of the left for this entire time that I've been politically active, and it's been mm -hmm. an unmitigated failure and disaster. And so the reality is people, even if they don't agree with your, like, you know, whatever your politics are, I think you can talk to them and if they think you're honest i think they'll listen and hear you out and i think that's really what the left has done you know there's other problems certainly but they've absolutely sacrificed honesty on these very core questions as to what it means to be an american was there a coup in our government was the president murdered uh, so that we could have a war in vietnam among other things you know, was there a um, inside job terrorist attack to murder 3,000 people in lower Manhattan so that we could end most of the Bill of Rights and spend $8 trillion and make everybody take their shoes off at the airport and make travel take another hour? Like, these are 
fundamental questions. You can't just skip them. You can't just say, I have no opinion. And so the fact that it's like become so it was so taboo to engage with, uh, with these questions on the left really kind of, um, pushed me to the point where it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm never, I'm not a leaving the left kind of person, but I'm realistic. I'm like anything where citizens in the United States can get together and talk about these issues and advocate, because that's ultimately the only thing that can really break it here. Um, aside from, you know, military coup, like uh, right. total uh, civil breakdown. The only it's thing, it's the really- only peaceful option. <laughs> yes. Uh, the only peaceful option is essentially a mass movement of people. And this is possible. Like, you know, we did get a second investigation into the Kennedy assassination that nobody wanted. That was also a, a limited hangout, but we did learn more things. But, uh, you know, and there was like um, enough public pressure that actually Obama, he tried to veto uh, the bill that allowed the 9-11 families to sue Saudi Arabia. He vetoed right. it, but there was enough public pressure that Congress overrode the veto. So it is like, yeah, we have kind of a... Um, a fake democracy, but eventually, if you get enough of the population on one side of something, you can actually power through the system. So, you know, I don't mind uh, uh, talking to people of different political persuasions because I think ultimately what I'm interested in is anti war and anti US empire. And I yeah. think there's no way. You know, we can disagree on social programs or whatever, but there's no way that this even becomes relevant if we don't dismantle the U.S. empire. And we don't dismantle the U.S. empire without 9-11 truth. I think that's ultimately what comes back to it is because, like, you know, you can – Americans are, in my opinion, nice people, and you can show everything about – these horrific crimes overseas the empire has done and they'll believe you, but it, it doesn't really hit home until you explain what they did in lower Manhattan that allowed them to do all that shit overseas. Yeah. Well, uh, what I, I always am perplexed by, and I, I'm just going to ask you because I feel like you're, you're a, uh, honest enough actor that you'll just tell me the truth. Um, I've never understood the what I describe as the base left, the the ones that ultimately identify some of these things that we're talking about today. Uh, you know, just quite clearly that our government is fucking evil, um, and and yet still, you know, that what comes along with leftism generally is a a large state that that looks after the people. How how do you square that circle? That I mean, is it just that you think it's reformable, or are you an abolitionist? I mean, because because from my vantage point, like if you conclude that the government has done this to us, mm-hmm. uh, I don't see how you don't become an abolitionist. Like, honestly, I, I just it's never made sense to me. And I think that's why I, I have more of a kindred spirit with some of the MAGA people, because even though they they support a, a, you know, a false idol in Donald Trump, um, their their tendency is towards the Bill of Rights and kind of an anti-government uh, vantage point. And, and obviously I, I align with that. Um, so I'm curious as to why why do you not go that path? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, I think there's, in my mind, there's delineation between, let's say, government and government war powers, which 
you know, I don't uh, cite the founders that much, but I do think they were very smart and incredibly wise when they, uh, A, put the war powers in Congress as opposed to the executive, which has, of course, been reversed. But B, you know, there was very, <laughs> there was really no standing army or very little standing army until uh, the post-World War II era. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was every war uh, the United States came in, it was this this big uh, big production to get a war machine together. And, and so, I mean, personally, and, and this might be a philosophical disagreement, but I think what really destroys, uh, what really destroyed this, this country was the, this kind of linking of the big business of war with the big, uh, with big government. So essentially the idea would be that if you could take the profit motive out of war, that if it was, if it didn't make people so much effing money, maybe you would have less war. And that would be the kind of Smedley Butler idea, which would be, uh, you know, nationalize all these, defense contractors wind them down you know let's see how much they like it when they make like an e5 ensigns pay grade um that kind of thing but oh, interesting well i mean you, know, you have you have lots of examples of uh you know militaristic governments that had nationalized industries and it didn't sure, exactly yeah. stop that uh, but i i get yeah. i guess your argument is that it would it would diminish it to some extent yeah i mean it's interesting where it's like yeah Wars existed for all of organized human society, and right. you know, and, and the it, rich have always benefited from it for the most part. Yeah, but like in particular, what we've seen with the United States, um, really going back to World War One, but you could certainly say since World War Two, is these wars that are like there's no real objective except for the war to continue, and um. You know, I, I'm sure people could find some parallels in history, but it's just so disturbing and sick to me where it's like 20 years in Afghanistan. And it seems, you know, uh, it seems to me that the purpose was just to spend $300 million a day. It was like, yeah. you know, certainly there were like other tertiary benefits. And, you know, they talk about the great game and it's nice to have military bases there because you can counter Russian aggression or whatever. But it seems to me like their real objective was just three hundred million a day, which just so happens that's what we're spending in Ukraine now. Um, Stunning coincidence. Yeah. So it's like I I think, or at least I hope that if you could disentangle the profit motive from war, you could kind of um, bring that under control a bit. But in general, like. I believe in an open society. So I do think government has a big functions. fan of George Soros. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they do like to corrupt like nice terms, you know, uh, but yeah, yes, like, <laughs> but you know, like, like I was talking earlier about as I get older, my political objectives narrow and what I would like to see would just be everything declassified. And mm -hmm. a lot of cynical people will say, you know, you could declassify, it wouldn't make a fucking difference. You could show people JFK assassination or 9-11 or anthrax attack inside job documents, wouldn't make a fucking difference. I don't think they're right, but I'll live with it if they are. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it is something where 
I have my particular views about how I think um, society should should function, and I think um, I, I, I'm a strong believer in unions. Obviously, they have problems, but I think um, in yeah, a yeah, uh, yeah it, just like in summary, like my idea, my ideal in terms of where I've got myself is just like let's just declassify and let's the ch- chips fall where they may. And my sure. bet is that we will, as Americans, organize ourselves into a better society if we are able to know the truth. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think that sunlight is is the best disinfectant. I, I really I really do believe that. I that's part of the reason I do this show is I like to have on you know people who are being suppressed, you know, in intellectually or or their voice or whatever. I mean, <laughs> it's uh it's weird the the gamut of guests that I'm having on now is just like, it's so diverse. And um, obviously the, the strain that runs through all of it is, is kind of a, an anti-government sentiment. But I, I think that what I've become much more uh, aware of over the past couple of years is how dangerous big businesses in this country and, and globally, moreover, um, uh, obviously I I've done a lot of research and, and now I, I travel speaking about ESG Um and I, I think that it's what's interesting about it is it is the it's the worst aspects of both things from my vantage point. It's kind of a communistic vantage point in, in terms of it's a global, global corporate fascistic model. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but it's espousing some things that allegedly someone like you would want, mm-hmm. uh, you know, looking out for minority rights and things of that nature. Uh, do you think that ultimately that will serve your ends to have big business in bed with big government? Because, you know, from my vantage point, the answer is clearly no. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I, and, you know, like I haven't really done much research on ESG. I know that's um, a new topic I've heard a bit about. And Sure. I mean, like Elon Musk was saying Exxon has a better rating than Tesla or something. Um, it's true. It's true. Yeah, do. it seems it seems a little odd. But anyways. Uh, <laughs> Just a little odd, yeah. The, the uh well you know we did um my old podcast my current one's out for smokes but the old one was grub stakers and we looked at different billionaires and it was pretty interesting and one of the last episodes we did was um just about like uh, klaus schwab and the world economic forum yep. and it is very interesting to kind of look at because you know this is annual gathering of the richest people on earth and you know people tell you they don't conspire but it's like no they do it pretty openly um, and, and they've, they've got, you know, a whole bunch of different agendas at Davos. But one of the things that, that I've kind of seen is that they do adopt a lot of this progressive language. And then in turn, because of this NGO industrial complex, you know, the, uh, the non-government organizations that, um, f- uh, that a lot of people on, you know, the left, but also the right are employed by. They mm-hmm. kind of get their marching orders from what comes out of these meetings. So it's like, you know, I, I believe that putting CO2 in the atmosphere increases the temperature. I believe global warming is a thing, essentially. I don't know how bad, but I don't think it'll be particularly good. So, and I do believe generally in like uh, reducing waste, you know, like trying yeah. to manage energy consumption, that kind of stuff. But then they take this this stuff and they say, okay, how do we do 
whatever this is, like conservation or whatever? How do we do whatever the goal is or whatever, or whatever the popular program is, but how do we preserve everybody at the top, like the top 1%? Like how do they have to make zero changes to their lives? In fact, how do they benefit from it? How do we do this in a way that we can make even more money? Mm-hmm. And that's what you get these kind of like, disturbing world economic forum uh you will own nothing and you will be happy right. you know you will reduce your consumption um you know i i'm sure the bugs are delicious but this, <laughs> this kind of weird fetish with eating the bugs and stuff but but it's it's like the idea is they talk about you know sustainability and um and these sorts of goals while they're flying private jets which people point to as hypocrisy correctly but but the entire point is they want to have the justification the moral justification for imposing austerity which is you know covid or climate change or whatever it might be is that they start from the premise that we are the rulers and that our lives are only going to get better. They can't get worse. And, you know, if worst case scenario, they'll stay the same, but they're Mm -hmm. only going to get better. So we have this top 1%. That's our starting premise. And then everything policy has to follow from that. So the World Economic Forum, they can get together and they can say, hey, climate change is a threat. We should try to mitigate climate change. But we're going to do that in a particular way where we're going to put all of the burden on the people below us because there's no acceptable scenario where the top uh, 1% of the global elite will have to change anything. Sure. So so like essentially a lot of what comes out of the World Economic Forum is very progressive language because that's the way they wrap it up. They they get very smart messaging people and you know they have a lot of money going around these NGOs and they get together at their meetings starting with the premise how do we preserve ourselves? And then they kind of put the talking points out there. You are going to have to deal with less. You shouldn't have children. You shouldn't, you know, (laughs) they're just trying to, they're just creating the moral framework for the government action that will follow. Yeah, no, I think it's crystal clear. I mean, if you have someone that's flying a, you know, private G5 or whatever to to Davos every year and, and all over the world to tell us about how dangerous carbon emissions are, there's something disconnected with that given that you know we're now able to converse in a very reasonable fashion through the internet it's yes. really not necessary that you fuckers go get in front of each other uh, and, and i i this is largely why i don't buy the premises because I, I if you if you really believed <clears throat> that this was such a catastrophic risk to humanity uh you would actually be changing your lifestyle it wouldn't just be you know lip service and and the fact that none of these people do for the most part uh, <clears throat> tells me that they're they're not true believers, and if they're not true believers, well, then I'm certainly not going to be a true believer either. But, anyways, I don't want to argue about climate change. I I, uh, I I just really am concerned that um, these these people have really a, a Malthusian worldview where it's like the the only the only solution to this is depopulation. Like it it really seems as if that's that's ultimately what they've concluded, and and they're going to bring that about however necessary um uh, speaking of depopulation uh you you already brought up the ukraine and russia war uh what's your what's your vantage point on that because it it seems to me as if this has been once again our military industrial complex finding a new uh venue to you know 
reap their $300 million a day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know I, I already cited uh, Peter Dale Scott earlier, um, but he's like, again, one of the people who really opened my mind to so many of these things, but he, he talks about, um, and, and just like as a brief digression, I talked about the left, but Peter Dale Scott's a guy who's been around since Berkeley. He's been a leftist since Berkeley. And, you know, I followed politics. I only heard about him a couple years ago. Like, and I'm not, you know, uh, you know, like uh, most people on the street wouldn't know Noam Chomsky, but like most people who follow politics know Noam Chomsky. But Peter Dale Scott just, he disappears because the nation won't publish him. Democracy Now! won't have him on because, again, he rightly acknowledges there was a conspiracy in the assassination of President Kennedy and rightly acknowledges there was a conspiracy in 9-11. And this is, you know, forbidden taboo stuff on uh, leftist media. But yeah, anyways, I'm not, he's I'm not a, familiar with him. I, I need to look into him, too. Yeah. Oh, I definitely recommend. Please um, hit me up. I can always give you book recommendations. But cool. um, but anyway, so he's uh, his theory and, and what's so interesting to uh, What's so interesting to me is he's been publishing since, like, I think 1972. He wrote The War Conspiracy, which talked about, you know, Vietnam and stuff. But basically, even going back to then, he says that every the way the military-industrial complex functions is that every time you see U.S. withdrawal from one area, one theater of war, you see a um, adjacent or, let's say, following buildup in another area to kind of offset it. So even back then, he made the example of um, President Kennedy when he when he came in. He had uh, neutralization in Laos. The, a lot of his advisors wanted him to invade Laos and deploy U.S. troops there, but instead he kind of cooled the tensions and he struck a deal with Khrushchev, and they kind of, you know, split it up on uh, on terms uh, that you know both parties could live with at least for now. And then, but because of that de-escalation in Laos. He, in turn, had escalation in Vietnam, you know, more troops in Vietnam. Right. By Afghanistan, so, hello, Ukraine. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's like, you know, and that's what I really appreciate about his kind of um, structural view of, of the deep state in, in U.S. politics is that he provides like an actual framework for understanding what we, what we mean when we say military-industrial complex. And so essentially, like, like, that's where we've been going is that uh, we're at the point where there's so much fucking money on the table and the people making the money are literal fucking killers. I mean, they're the people who make the machines that kill. They hire, you know, all the spec ops, uh, as soon as they want to go private, they've got a good job. Uh, all the generals, it's just like this confluence of, of people who make the weapons and do the killing and they make a lot of fucking money. So it's very dangerous to fuck with their money. So that's why, you know, when uh, I, I do think Biden did the right thing pulling out of Afghanistan and you saw a real media freak out. And I think the, the freak out, uh, the media getting very mad at Biden for a minute kind of subsided. Well, I really entirely subsided as soon as this Ukraine thing started, because like I said, 300 million a day in Afghanistan just becomes 300 million a day in Ukraine. And and when that ends, it'll be three hundred million a day in Taiwan, probably. I mean, yeah, this is this is the this is why it's so pervasive. Is like we just can't end wars anymore, and and ultimately, this is why I'm I'm so convinced that the empire will fall because of uh you know fiscal issues. Uh, I think our dollar will die ultimately because this 
this gravy train will not stop until there's basically no uh, no fuel left in the train or coal or however you run a train. I don't fucking know. I'm mm-hmm. stupid. Uh, <laughs> but but I, what what really concerns me though is that as they get more desperate to maintain this gravy train, they are now picking proxy wars not with non-nuclear countries, a la Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, you know, Iran, whatever. Uh, and now they're doing it with fucking Russia, <laughs> you know, like a, a a nuclear power with, in my opinion, a nuclear arsenal which is superior to our own, and mm. and they're really playing with fire here, and and ultimately with you know for their own benefit, they are risking complete global annihilation, and and that is just that's a level of uh, just derangedness that I can't wrap my head around. Uh, do you think that that Putin is in on this? Because I I personally do not. Well, it's interesting. Like Putin was kind of their guy for a minute. But then he charted his own course and became a pariah. That's that's how I view it too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, it is very kind of scary because you know we're getting to this point where these people, you know, in charge in the United States, they're all octogenarians. They're all eighty-year-olds. They have, you know, if we're lucky, less than a decade less. But if we're unlucky, they might be around a while longer. Um, But but so it's like okay, these people who are entirely selfish never done anything for anybody but themselves their entire lives and they're facing down the end what really stops them from just taking the rest of us with them like people seem so it's it's so confusing to me when you meet americans and they think oh a nuclear war could never happen like what do you think these fucking people have been doing like have you seen what makes you think that the people who like are managing the nuclear stockpile in the United States give a fuck about you or even the future. Like, have they done anything that makes you think that they have long-term plans that they're not just fucking winging this five minutes at a time and, you know, trying to get. That's the vibe I get, man. I really do. I, I, I get the vibe that like the, the, not just the military industrial complex, but kind of like the, the entire oligarchy is realizing that, the empire is ending and they're going to, you know, rape it for everything they can. And, mm-hmm. and in that process, you know, we're all becoming poorer, you know, the average people and, and you've described it as the 1%. I would, I would clarify it down to the 0.01%. I mean, it mm-hmm. is, it is not the, cause you could have like 400 or $500,000 income per, per year and be in the 1%. I'm talking people who are making fucking billions of dollars per year <clears throat> or, you know, tens of millions of dollars per year for sure and and they just simply seem to be like all out like like they're going to take they're going to take every last dollar they can get and they're going to just watch us watch this whole thing uh collapse but unfortunately the end of empires you basically have two choices either you have an all-out war which you know declares definitively okay you're no longer the global hegemon or you accept that there's going to be some other bipolar uh, world order, in which case, you know, China and Russia get to to run the East and, you know, the Euro-American alliance kind of runs the West. And I think that that's a much more natural balance to be had, um, but it doesn't seem as if they're willing to allow it without, you know, a major conflict. How do you think it plays out? Yeah, I mean, that's the scary thing, because you're right. Like, that's... Um 
You know, it's it's funny. Like I do some like trolly kind of pro Nixon posts on Twitter, and and people get mad. But I, I do honestly believe Nixon's, um, well, a to the, <laughs> I believe Nixon's better than any Democrat we have in Congress right now. Uh, I will admit that, and he's probably the last quote unquote good president, even though he's a mass murderer. But the <laughs> the point is, he he's the last like president to actually just kind of acknowledge the reality of the situation, which is what his entire doctrine was. You split Russia and China and you make separate deals with both. That was the Nixon policy. And that's part of what got him cooed at Watergate because it's not really good for business when we do what is the obvious solution, which is that China and Russia are nuclear powers. There's no scenario in which we in which a war with them would be winnable. I mean, like, no, yeah, you could, you could quote unquote win, but Jesus Christ, like, <laughs> you know, uh, 4 billion dead people later. Um, and so the solution is simple enough. It's we each delineate our spheres of influence and you stay out of our backyard, we'll stay out of your backyard. And that's how you keep the peace. And that's, you know, this is real politics uh, you don't have to like your uh, adversary, um, but you should acknowledge this is the best solution we've come up with. So, but that's just totally missing from U.S. politics now. There's no idea. In fact, there's all these psychos on Twitter. They want to fight Russia and China at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, even even one would be uh, a catastrophe just unprecedented in human history it, it could very well be the extinction of the human race like there was a study that estimated that if even india and pakistan if they have a quote a relatively low level nuclear war like one or two billion people could die in famines like it's we don't know what happens if a bunch of nukes start going off and you know all that ash goes up in the clouds and uh, blocks out the sun and changes the temperatures and fucks with the crops and all this and, you know, the radiation, everything. So it's like there are all these run-on effects that we just don't know and that I really, it's so irresponsible to increase the likelihood that they will occur. But I think there is a real temptation in, let's say, elements of the U.S. military and uh, military-industrial complex that it's like, yeah, right now America is the biggest, most powerful military on earth, but probably not going to be that way forever. You know, every decade China closes the gap a little bit more. So the temptation would be to attack China while we still have an advantage. I very much think that's like, it's a terrifying but very serious strain of thought because they don't want to do the alternative, which would be essentially what we've talked about here, you know, renewing the American nation, kind of rebuilding uh, any sense of community, any sense of uh, camaraderie and truth, like reestablishing the idea that this is actually a democracy and that we have free speech and free information and, and that kind of stuff. Th- those things that you would need to do to, to revitalize America and make it so it's it's not what it is now, which is just kind of this this place where everybody knows the system sucks, the system's corrupt, so I'm going to get mine. Like right. That's all anybody thinks about mm-hmm. here because there's there's no grander purpose. Yes. And if you're not going to revitalize the grander purpose of America, which doesn't seem uh, – it, it would require some sacrifices from people at the top that they don't seem willing to make at this point, then yeah, 
I guess you just try to attack China first before they overtake you. Um, so that's that's something we have to do our best to stop. No, I completely agree. I mean, uh, this is this is why I've been reaching out to people who are not of my political, you know, lane. Is I, I think that there are there are certain things that supersede political alignment, and and if if preventing a nuclear holocaust isn't at your top of your list, uh, then I don't know what the fuck you value. Like, honestly. And mm-hmm. and I think that we are really in danger of, as they play this kind of divide and conquer game amongst the left and right, um, is that that comes to pass. And and I'll just be damned if I'm not going to fucking call it out before that happens. Uh, like, I, sure, I'm powerless to stop it ultimately, but if I can reach, you know, 10,000 people per episode and they, they talk to a couple more people and who knows, you know, who knows if that's enough to, cause it's, it's like, we're playing on the margins here. Like it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a very, uh, narrow margin from which we, we ultimately decide whether or not we end up in world war three. And, and at this point, you know, there's no political will amongst the, the voting public in this country for a world war. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we have no morale whatsoever. We don't even value our, our, you know, patriotic duty our country any of that stuff and i'm fine with that for the record i don't really give a shit um but i just hope that that if if we all value living (laughs) that that we can actually come together on the most important thing and say this is a suicide pact we cannot have war with either russia or china much less both you fucking lunatics and that Mm -hmm. That should be a bipartisan position that everybody should be able to get on board with. And somehow, I will still have people in my comments right now that are going to say, "Oh, you're deluded. You're delusional. You you have to you have to stand strong against the Chicoms." Uh, you know, That's I'm gonna right. Alex, I'm going to have Alex Jones on in a couple of days. But my vantage point is this: for any of the people out there that are har- hardcore China hawks, if you are an anti-communist and you don't believe that communism works, then just let them fucking collapse on their own. You don't need to go blow them up, and you don't need to have them blow us up. Same with Russia. If you think that there's still some sort of communist uh, country, just let them collapse on their own. We don't need to be going to war. We don't need to all die over this shit. So anyways, that's my my ending rant. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Sean. If you have any other comments that you'd like to leave the people with or uh, or links so they can follow your work, go for it. Oh, sure. Thank you for having me. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, absolutely. I would say you can check out my podcast, Out for Smokes. Um, we do uh, life advice for my friend, comedian Mike Rossini at a son. So we just do different uh, episodes of life advice. So we'll do political stuff. Like we just did a 9-11 episode to kind of talk about some of the things I talked about here. Um, cool. But we'll also do general stuff like dating and, you know, home improvement. So uh, check us out. We're on uh, Podbean and Patreon. And uh, please hit us up if you have uh uh, feedback for the show i'm on twitter at not sean mccarthy and um you know just in closing like uh i believe there is i believe there are places uh, for an anti-war movement to form in america that cross political lines and we can certainly have our disagreements on the social and the economic issues but um if we can get a big enough coalition together to uh, first of all as you were saying say no to nuclear war but second, to dismantle this damn empire and, yep. you know, return things to the home front where we can settle our differences um, amicably through the political arena. I think that's worth doing. And I think it's always worth talking to people of different persuasions who are sincerely interested in that goal. I couldn't couldn't agree more. Everybody who's uh, watching right now, please hit that like, hit the subscribe button. 
leave a comment, help with the algos, do the whole thing. Uh, if you want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. Sign up to become a supporting member so you can come in on stream with me. Uh, I'm probably going to be doing one right after my episode with Alex Jones, so you guys can, you know, ask me whatever insane questions you have after we fucking light the internet on fire. And I probably lose my channel immediately after that. So it's very <laughs> important you go to libertylockdown.locals.com and sign up to become a supporting member because that may be my only outlet after that. Um, anyways, thank Happy you so much. Happy to be your last guest. <laughs> yes, exactly. Dude. <laughs> it's going to be crazy. Uh, anyways, uh, if anybody wants to get a Liberty Lockdown shirt, go to toplobster.com. <laughs>